you're here and glad that we have this opportunity to worship our God once again. As you can tell by the title, there's actually a bunch of layers to the phrase that is given. And of course, with the question mark, that adds another layer. And that is some, when you read the sign, if you read the sign on Wednesday night, you're wondering, is Mitch saying he believes in predestination? And I would say to you, yes, I believe in it. It's right here in scripture. We just read it. And then some would say, yeah, but that's not what my question was, right? You know, do you believe in this concept where God had foreordained everything? And what I mean by everything, um, to some people's view on predestination so far as even the fact that I chose the sermon this morning or that I went left or right um, on, on the street. And so or the molecules that, that are bouncing around in space or the debris that's floating in the air. Many would actually say yes to that point. That's not my view. But I'm not here to try and share my view, although I'm going to be biased because I have my own views that I'm going to share with you as every single person who is going to preach God's word. What everyone will want to say is it's all from God's word. The reality is, and of course, just before the sermon, Sawyer says, I'm looking forward to the sermon this morning. I said, from a scholarly mind, I could see exactly why he would say that because scholars cannot even agree on this subject matter that we have. And so I chose, no pun intended, but I chose the title from a standpoint of choosing. I choose. There's free will. I choose predestination. The concept that is given in Scripture, even if I don't fully understand everything that I'm going to be sharing this morning, I have my convictions, and I want to share those things with you. And part of the reason is because I was asked, you know, Mitch, I'm having difficulty when I read these verses and I read those verses, they seem to contradict each other, and I want help. So I'm looking at April. I don't see Paul here, but that's because of that, that concept, right, that question that he had. And so that's what I'm wanting to tackle this morning. And so the question mark is because of the confusion that I believe exists on polar ends. I believe when we look at the subject matter from one standpoint, and that standpoint for just a, a sake of convenience just labeling as more of a Calvinistic mindset. So those that follow after John Calvin's mindset, uh, whether they know it or not, and you may be here, you may be following some points of Calvinism and not even realize it. You may agree with certain points, even if you would say, I don't want to follow John Calvin. I just want to follow God, right? Or you may follow Jacobus um, Arminius's position that he has with regard to what we refer to as Arminianism. So I don't want to get into all the terms this morning, and there's, there's more that we could get into. I just want to be very simple about what we're looking at and look at some of these scriptures. So let's do that. Let's look at some of these scriptures. So we just had Garland read for us from um, the beginning of Ephesians 1 all the way through verse 14. I'm going to focus in on verses 3 through 6 and then see verses 4 and 5 in particular because those are the verses that stand out with us. So, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So, blessed be God. He's blessed us in all the blessings that we have that are in Christ. And he continues with the clause and says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And therein lies this concept. I mean, God chose individuals before this world was even created. Because that's what it sounds like from the reading of this passage. And if you take it at point blank, then that's what you would have to conclude. And some would say, well, let's, let's read a little bit further. 
that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. And others would say, wait a second, the, the clause doesn't end there. We've added our, our little comma in English, but the thought continues in that he chose us that we would be holy and blameless before him. And so therein lies the debate that some will have. Is it that he simply chose us by name before the foundation of the world, or he chose us by name knowing that individuals are going to be made holy and blameless? And that's the reason why we're, we're chosen. And so again, question marks on all the nuances of every single word and why we have these debates. And then he goes on to say, in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons. Right? So again, similar to the beginning of, of that previous statement, he chose us before the foundation of the world, is this concept that he predestined us. And so we're going to be looking at that concept, if you will. But notice he goes on that he predestined us according to the kind intention of his will. And so this is like a ping pong match between those that say, God, any, many, many mode us, you chose, you're not chosen. Or the other side are saying, no, 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 God has chosen and predestined a quote-unquote plan, but he knew the individuals that would follow after that plan because he's God. And therefore, here is this, in the, these individuals who are living according to the kind intention of his will. They're being holy and blameless. And so some people like to hunker down in one corner and others hunker down in the other corner. Well, maybe there's more to it than just those two corners. Maybe there is a marriage between these seeming contradictions. And so, anyway, you've got this one verse that seems to be very um, Calvinistic, if I can just label it very conveniently. And so you've got that verse, and there's many others, by the way, not just these that I'm going to be sharing. And I'm only going to share three on one side, three on the other side to begin with. So here's another one. When the Gentiles heard this as re re with regard to the gospel being proclaimed to not just the Jews, but also to the Gentiles, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. So it sounds like predestination the way many would purport it to be today. Or Romans 9. In fact, great thing to just read the entirety of Romans chapter 9. This would be one of the most beautiful passages if you have it from a predestined standpoint, because the word is being used this way, and you focus in on some of these verses that, that deal with this aspect. So, just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. So, I choose you, not you, kind of a mindset. What shall we say then? There is no, or there is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says, or God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. I choose to have mercy on you. I choose to have compassion on you. Right? So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs. So whether you intend it or whether you do it, it doesn't depend upon you, but on God who has mercy. And so when you have verses like this, then questions arise, especially if you don't hold to this, um, as I would say, this end of the spectrum, right? Well, let's go to the other side of the ex that spectrum, if you will, the other end. So these are going to be passages that are known as Armenian-type passages. So whether you agree with him on, on all that he uh, teaches about free will, this is the mindset or these are the passages that says... 
these are good passages for our side, if you will, of this, this um, difference or this division that many purport to. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. But he is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And so the view is, God doesn't want a single soul lost. And there is the possibility that if everyone hears the gospel, and if everyone receives the teaching of the good news of Jesus Christ, that they would all be saved. Not a soul would perish. That's what God wants. And what kind of God would want anything less than all of his creation to be saved? So therein lies this view, right? Naturally, the other side would say, but we know we're all guilty of sin. We don't follow after God. There are a number of scriptures that make that point, right? And so not everyone's going to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then the back, the Armenian side says, yeah, but look at God's intention. He wants every single of his creation to be saved. Focus in on that. And so this is the back and forth. Here's another passage, Deuteronomy 29. And although it's out of the Old Testament, there is a lot in the New Testament that we could go to show this. But this passage really brings out in a concrete way this idea of, of man's free will. So Israel is ready to go into the land of promise. They're ready to enter this land. And they're at Acacia Grove, and Moses is giving them a recountance of their relationship with God and what have you. And toward the end, although it's not toward the end of the book, but toward the end of this um, speech, if you will, this monologue, he gives this statement of the blessings, chapter 28, and the cursings, chapter 29. So, and I know that's not technically true between 28 and 29, but generally speaking, you got blessings and cursings. So Deuteronomy 29, beginning in verse 20. I'm going to just skip through a couple of the verses and just focus in on this because it's six verses long. See, I've set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. And then going on further into the passage. But if your heart turns away and you will not obey but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. So he says, here's life and death between you and I want you to choose but if your heart turns away in other words if you choose to turn away from this covenant agreement before entering this land know that this is what's going to happen to you therefore he says choose life in order that you may live you and your descendants by loving the Lord your God by obeying his voice and by holding fast to him so there is this whole concept of a free will that is provided and so the Armenian would say this is God's will. We've got a choice. He made us this way, right? And then one more passage, and there are, again, many other passages on both sides. For in the case of those, and this is out of Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6, and these are those who, um, who are believed to be children of God, according to some. Others would say these are theoretical or hypothetical um, believers, and then others um, would say they're not really genuine believers they are reprobate okay so others will inject here's the audience that the hebrew writer is writing to but we're not going to do that right now we're just going to simply just read it as is for in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the holy spirit and they've tasted the good word of god and the power of the age to come 
and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. So you've got passages that sound very quote-unquote predestination-like, and then you've got other passages that sound quote-unquote free will-like. So the question is, which is it, right? Which team are you on, Team Kelvin or Team Arminius? Because that's what people do. They hunker down and they go into whatever corner they sound more likened unto. And I'm just going to go on a very short but quick soapbox. I wish we had no labels like this. As convenient as labels are, as convenient as it helps us to kind of go, I kind of side more with this line of thinking. What we begin to do is we hunker down and say, I'm in this camp. Rather than the fact that, brethren, not a soul among us, let alone all the scholars of the world over the last 2,000 years that have been talking about this concept here, give or take, the last 2,000 years, we don't have the answers. Some of us think we have the answers. Some of us act like we have all the answers. Some of this is difficult to get into because we're human beings and we're fallible. And while we may say, well, we have all of God's word and it's here for us to know, that's true. But think of all the other subject matters that we go, at, go polar opposites on, right? This is just one more of, of just an untold number of subject matters. But because we are wanting to be... Um, diligent in our study of God's word, diligent in doing God's will, and diligent in having the mind frame that, that is the frame of mind that helps us to walk according to his good pleasure, we want to answer these questions. And so we start putting ourselves in various camps. And so I propose something a little different than, than that concept. But I just want to give just this quick summary, okay? Not so far from exclusive, just, I mean... We could be on it for a year and still not exhaust the subject matter. So, generally speaking, the concept of those that use predestination in this Calvinistic way is God chooses you from before the foundation of the world, you specifically. So, what that would mean is that there are some in this room, whether you want to be saved or not, you will be saved. Because you will be made to have a heart that wants to be saved. So you may not feel like you want to be saved, but not right now. But later on, you are going to um, not be able to resist God's grace. And it's part of the whole Calvinistic view, right? Part of the tool of irresistible grace. So that's the concept on that. You eventually choose him before you die. You cannot reject him. Because there are a number of passages that say that you're in him and nothing can separate you from him. We'll look at some of these passages in Romans chapter 8. So you've got that predestination side. Free will side, God chooses you to be holy and blameless. Not choosing you specifically, although he knows that you will choose because he created you to do that, to make choice. But you um, will be chosen to be holy and blameless. And now have you chosen that? You will have been elected by him because of that. That's the mindset. And of course, the Calvinist would have questions for you by virtue of that statement. You can choose God or reject God. Plain and simple, just like Deuteronomy 29 and many other passages that talk about choosing. You can choose to reject God after having desired him. Because we looked at passages like Hebrews chapter 6 that gave that. So that's a summary of these two polar opposites, right? 
instead of trying to prove one of the two polar positions, I take the position that they coexist. I take the position that, that there are going to be truths with regard to God knowing and how God chooses these individuals. I take the position that there are going to be the ability that God, when making man, has given us the gift of choosing. And it is my view that I have called limited sovereignty and that we are able to make these choices. And I want us to start with the concept from the very beginning. All right. So when we look at these passages, we're going to see that. But I want to start before going into the reality that is a fact as far as my view is concerned of free will. I want to start in Genesis 1 and then I'll focus in on Genesis 2 and 3 and following. So go to Genesis 1. If you go... Go back to verse 26. Remember, God has already made man, right? Or is, is in the process, I should say, of making man. And notice the statement here. And I think this gives us insight, particularly when you take the entirety of chapter 1. There's things in chapter 1 that I believe is more than just uh, the creation of, of humankind, but dealing with humankind. Look at what we have as far as this limited sovereignty. In verse 26, God says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image, male and female. And then he blessed them and he said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. I've given you every herb that yields seed of the face of the ground, every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you, it is for food. So by having dominion, there is this concept of limited sovereignty. And I say limited because we're not God. God is all-powerful, and so his free will is greater than our free will. Let me illustrate it um, in the way I used in the bulletin. So you have parents and children, right? Children come into the world, and mom and dad, even at the earliest of their child's life, right? So the Watts, they had little babies. Some of y'all have got your, your little ones that are growing up. Um, I think I saw Mason running around this morning. <laughs> and I have a feeling that Mason did that of his own accord, <laughs> right? And so he's running around and, and what have you. Well, even as parents, we can choose to say, no, you cannot run around, even though I'm going to hold you. No more running around, Mason, right? So you've got that concept. God makes man, and God says to man, I'm giving you dominion. You choose what you want to eat. You choose how you're going to interact with the animals. You choose how you're going to cultivate the ground. There's a lot of choosing that takes place with man. In fact... In chapter 2, after um, uh, when he talks about the garden and, and of the tree of life, and we're going to talk about that choice in a little bit, he talks about naming all of God's creation, the animals. That was man's choice. Man is choosing to name these animals. All of these things are Im implications of what I would refer to as limited sovereignty. And so I believe from the outset, biblically speaking, that God is doing this. And here's the reason why. I don't believe our God, God full of love and a God that is meant for community. In other words, God was never, 
intending to be all alone. He creates all the spiritual beings, right, in the heavenly places, which we don't really talk about much because it's kind of weird and mystical and what have you. But he creates all these spiritual beings in the heavenly places. We refer to a number of them as angels, right? Creates them. And some of them follow him and some of them we see don't follow him. We read that in scripture, right? Why? I believe because of free will that God gave. But more importantly, why is God giving his creation, including mankind, this choice, the ability to choose? I believe because God is creating us and he's wanting to partner with mankind. And notice when I say partnership, he's still God. He's still above us. Okay? So the idea of partnering is not the idea of coming in and we're just like here or this plane. We're partnering, but he, he supersedes us. And he partners. So just as he has dominion, we have this limited dominion. Just as he chooses, we are able to choose. That's why we're made in his likeness. It's not limited to the fact that because God is love that we can love. Right? Because guess what? We're, we're made in his likeness, but we have the propensity and the choice to not love, but to hate. God is truth, but we have the, not only the, um, the choice, but even the propensity to lie. But God doesn't lie, even though we're made in his image. Because we have the ability to make these choices. And we can go on and on with this, this concept. So that's what we're looking at so far. So now with that in mind, go to Genesis chapter 2, a passage we're very familiar with. And let's read about this choice, the very first choice revealed explicitly in Scripture for us. So Genesis chapter 2, beginning here in um, verse, verse 15. Let's see if I can read that with you. All right, then the Lord took man, put him in the garden um, to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. That concept of freely eating is you choose. There's that liberty, the freedom. So you choose of all these trees you can choose. See that one in the middle of the garden? Don't eat that tree. God doesn't, I mean... I would have asked God, well, why didn't you put it in the garden then? If you didn't want us to eat it, keep it out of the garden. Right? I mean, that's my way of thinking at least. Why would you put that in the garden? And I believe it is for the intention that while here's my will and I don't want you to do your will, I want you to do my will, you have the freedom to choose. And so we have this picture of choice once again. And this limited sovereignty to actually go against the will of God. And so in Genesis chapter 2, that was the teaching. In Genesis chapter 3, we actually see the fulfillment of man doing his own will and not the will of God. Here's man in a perfect environment. He's not living in a world full of sin. He's living in a perfect environment. And some would say, but wait a second, Mitch. Was it really perfect? Because you know who was there to tempt them. So I well aware of that but they themselves have never experienced sin and they themselves have God explicitly telling them right here in the middle of the garden in the midst of all these trees that you're free to to have and to enjoy don't eat this one do my will and of course they don't they do their own in fact in contrast of Genesis chapter 3, in fact, contrast of Genesis 2, 15 through 17, and Genesis chapter 3 where man does his own will, here's the son of man, 
Here is God who comes in the flesh as man, fully man, mind you. And we see the direct contrast between being bent toward doing our own thing to Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He chooses, if you will, the Father's will. It is in stark contrast, black and white contrast between what we see in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 and right here as he's ready to go to the cross. He's willing to sacrifice everything to do the will of his fathers because he loves his father and knows that fellowship with his father means everything. That's the picture of this contrast. And so even we today, as God's children, right, at some point we look at our lives and here's the way we live. And so in Romans chapter 7, if you remember correctly, um, after he talks about the concept of law, getting to verse 15 following, you know, here is God, and I love you, God, and I want to do your will. I'm desiring to do your will. I don't do it. Here is sin. I hate sin because I love you, God, and I want to walk with you, God. I hate sin, and what do I do? I practice sin. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death, verse 24 says, right? And so with my mind, verse 25, through thanksgiving to Jesus Christ, with my mind, I will serve the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. So I'm in this body and I'm betwixt. I've got this war between flesh and spirit that goes on, and I'm having to choose. The difference is, you remember, when those who become Christians, what are we gifted with? The Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, verse 38, right? Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so we're told in chapter 8 about walking in the Spirit and not walking according to the flesh. Why? Because we have God's Spirit dwelling in us. And how all that works, I don't know, but I accept it, that God dwells in us. I'm not here to tell you that it's just limited to God's Word, the Holy Spirit. That is a metaphoric dwelling in us. I'm talking about God having dwelled in his believers. There are many passages that bring that out. And some of us were too scared about these passages. But they're there. We have to accept them. Even if we don't fully understand them. So we walk in the spirit, not according to the flesh. And as a result, notice, even children of God with the spirit of God dwelling within them can still sin against God. So if you look at 1 John chapter 1, and this would be what would be referred to 1 John as a more Calvinistic slant type Bible passages, but this particular verse itself, I believe, would show that there is this concept of man's free will. So read that passage again one more time, 1 John, one more time, that is hopefully in, in your readings that you typically have in your, your walk with God. But in verse 7, he says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And then guess what? The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Some would argue it's all past sin. I would argue it includes sin that takes place as a Christian. Remember, much of the New Testament letters 
are exhortations and admonitions and warnings. Why? Because Christians live in sin at times. Mitch, you said live in sin. Some Christians do. And they're going to lose their soul over it. In my view. Because they're living in sin. Not Christians that sin. This is a Christian who sins. And this Christian who sins has their blood cleansed. The one who rejects God, I believe, is that, that unpardonable sin. You reject God. You fall away from him. And therein lies other passages that talk about falling away. That they are there and you cannot, you cannot exegete them away, if you will. They're there. It's a reality. It happens. The reality, however, is when, when you are in Christ, despite the fact that you may sin, and you may sin a lot. And I don't know what a lot means. And there is no percentage that says, okay, if you sin only 1%, you're in the good place. If you sin 99%, man, you have no hope for heaven. That's not the point of this. I believe you can have a genuine desire to walk with God and be guilty of sin. And, and your sin may be more often and more severe than the brother or sister in Christ next to your right or your left. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses you from all sin. And I believe you're going to have individuals that may be more morally upright than you, but who reject God and will be lost after having tasted him and his goodness. I believe there are too many passages that show that to be the case. And so when we read through these passages, these are just some of them that talk about this concept of free will. And all these passages show this among many others. In addition to that is the concept of God's sovereignty. And so if you have your bulletin out, if you saw um, on the front page, I have a picture of a, um, dominoes falling, right? So in my mind, I picture a person, humankind, having a will, and that will is set in motion. And those dominoes start falling. And here comes God, and he stops those dominoes. And there are many illustrations in the scriptures where God steps into this human world in a variety of ways and stops those dominoes. Right? Think about it. Genesis chapter 18, Sodom and Gomorrah. There's a family that's saved. Right? Lot and his family. Go back to Genesis chapter 5, and Genesis particularly chapter 6. God's going to destroy the world, but he steps in to save a family. There are many, many passages where God steps in. We see it. We saw that in, um, here in the fact that he brings his only begotten son to come into this world to die. He's actually interjecting himself into the affairs of humankind. That's what Ephesians 1. We're seeing God's sovereignty. And that God knew these things, this foreknowledge, before even creating humankind. And some would say, wow, I don't get it. If he's known that beforehand, isn't he positioning every single piece of the puzzle? I don't necessarily believe that he's choosing every single piece of the puzzle, as some would want to believe. I believe he chooses what pieces of the puzzle to, to do. And it, everything else falls into place because it's still fulfilling his will through the choices of man. Again, this is very complex stuff that we're getting into, and there's always questions about every statement being made but that's what we're seeing here and so we have passages like psalm 139 that scare some of us 
that I think is actually beautiful. Read Psalm 139. This passage is absolutely beautiful for us to accept the sovereignty of God. And then this passage will support many other passages, like in the book of Proverbs, that you're going to have that bring this aspect out time and time and time again. Verse 1, Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. He's just like a 24-hour video camera that can, that can look right into your soul. Not just the, the physical outward adorning of your body, but he sees everything from outward actions to the heart. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Why? Because you're God. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me, and such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. For those that were in our Bible study this morning in Job, there's this darkness. I believe that he's, he's making parallel reference to. Anyway, he goes on and says, For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works. And that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed and in your book they're all written the days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them that is why you have passages like you know i have my desire to do this but then god guides my steps see these passages exist and we have to understand that god does influence our lives and here's one more way to illustrate it Taking this passage, Psalm 139, into a daily application, I want to ask you, raise your hand if you really, really believe this. Do you believe God actually hears and is able to answer your prayers? Yes or no? Yes. That means God is active in your life and in the lives of mankind. He is not somehow some far off, made up, conjured up um, substance of our minds that says, I'm just going to pray because, I mean, what else can we do? We genuinely believe or genuinely believe that God is able to interact into our lives in ways that are mysterious to us. Passages like this are the reason why we can pray to God with confidence, among many others. God, knowing what man would choose to do, because he's God, he's sovereign, he is an all-knowing God, he is an all-present God, and he is an all-powerful God. So if he's an all-knowing God, and some would say, well, God can choose not to know. I'm not going down that path for now. 
just believe that God does know is what the way I would understand him. God, from the foundation, before the foundation of the world, before time begins, knowing what man would choose to do, can use man's choices in addition, like man's free, um, limited, sovereign free will, as well as his own free will, where he can interject himself whenever and however he chooses. Work together. It does not take away from man's free will, but it can be superseded. You know how sometimes when someone's on the brink of death and someone prays to God, and we have no other phrase but to say, that was miraculous how this person is still alive. There's no way he should have been alive. Can God work in the lives of men? Well, then why pray? Unless we truly believe that he does. And I believe that because he is a sovereign God that he can work. And I don't know how he does it. I can read you examples of scripture of when he has done it. And he's done it many, many times, biblically speaking. And although we don't live 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years ago and can read them in the pages here, I believe he's every bit as alive today as he was then. And I mean it sincerely. And so we have this interaction between God's sovereignty and man's choices. And those two passages that I'll bring up in Genesis 50 um, and then Acts chapter 2 are these. Remember when um, God, um, Joseph's brothers put him in the pit and he got these travelers and he says, ah, let's go ahead and sell our brother. So they sell him. He ends up in Egypt. And all kinds of things happen to Job. Good and, I mean, Job, Joseph, good and evil, right? He always does well because of his good integrity, but then bad things happen to him. Whether it be Potiphar's wife, whether he gets thrown in prison, or later on, uh, things happening. Bottom line is, fast forward years later, over a decade later, over 13 years later, and there's this great famine. Brothers come to him. And all comes to Joseph's mind when he reminds them, remember when you sold me, your intentions were evil. Guess what God was doing in the background? When I say background, background because as humans we could not see his doings. God meant it for your salvation. It did not take away from their choice. Their choices were made they were not puppets on strings. They have their sovereignty, even if it be limited, but they use it. And God, because of who God is, can take the choices and use those very choices to bring about his good pleasure. And that's what we're seeing happening, not only in that instance and many other instances that we can read of, but how about in Acts chapter 2 when we talk about the, the, the desire that God has to set his only begotten, right? Part of his Godhead to come in the form and the likeness of man. Where he's going to choose that my son is going to be condemned before man. But know this, I'm putting him there. Because he's going to be the very epitome of the propiti what propitiation should be. His blood for the world. And so when Peter is preaching the gospel, he shares this very concept. And he also when, when you look at Paul's writings, shares very similarly these very concepts in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 when he says, listen, if mankind knew 
who Jesus was, the rulers knew who Jesus was, that he was the Christ, they would never have crucified him. They would have made a different choice in how they looked at Jesus. But God's ways are higher. Is higher. And God's sovereignty shows through when we see it in action, where he sends his son through the most paradoxical way, through all the ironies of mankind, on that cross. In the meantime, the Jews are, are so sly, and the Pharisees and the leaders of the Sanhedrin, um, however Pilate is dealing with his own issues between him and his wife and, and his condemnation of Jesus Christ, whatever it was, they all put him on that cross, and yet, despite their choices, God's sovereignty shines through. So, as we look at these verses, and there are many more that we could look at, we can see God's sovereignty working in and through and sometimes superseding man's limited sovereignty. So while God could force a person to obey him, just like mom and dad can force their children, right, especially when they're young, there is a way in which in a similar parallel, not a full parallel, but a similar parallel, that parents can force their children to obey, right? Some of your children are made to come to church. If you gave them their own choice, they would not come. So we exercise a, a form of sovereignty over our children in that regard. But instead of doing that, that would not be the epitome of love as far as I'm understanding God's love. I think it is a lower level of love, if I can get philosophical for just a little bit, than letting man freely choose him of his own accord because it's not a all-God thing as far as I'm concerned, and it's not an all-men thing as far as, I'm God, uh, as far as I'm concerned. It is an us thing where God makes man in his image to share in the fellowship with men. And man of his own accord freely chooses to honor and to worship and to praise to the glory of their God that created them. But it's 100% on their own. Just like if I say to Carrie Lynn and I say to McKenna, I want you to do such and such and such. And they don't hem and haw about it. Because I don't feel good about that kind of obedience. I don't feel good about them being forced that way. Although there are times when I do force them. But I feel good ultimately when they freely choose to say, Dad, I want to do what you want me to do because I know you love me. And you want, you want what's good for me. And the same for Dana and Levi. Same for Carly. Allie, Malia, and whatever other children we have. Right? <laughs> Instead of forcing us, God graciously, biblically speaking, in my mind, graciously and lovingly invites us to choose him. Here's the last passage we're going to go. It's in Matthew 28. It's a passage you are well familiar with before we look at the, the final slide. Look at Matthew 11, verse 28. Some of you can quote this passage, but I want to just hang on to this just a little bit. Let it soak in, and then we'll finish up from here. <coughs> Jesus is praying. He says in verse 25, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. There's his sovereignty that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent. He revealed them to babes. There's his sovereignty yet again. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight, his sovereignty. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills 
to reveal him more of God's sovereignty. And then come these words on the heel of God's sovereignty. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's an invitation. There are going to be many that choose not to accept that invitation of, of Jesus Christ. And then lies, therein lies this point here. There's a choice that man has been given, and that is, in my estimation, the greatest illustration of God's love of man's freedom. In my mind, there is no higher love than the expression of freedom of being able to choose God or possibly reject God. And that is why Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 17, that I thank you. I thank you, God, because the hearts of these brethren are given to you, right? Look at what he says here. Romans chapter 6, verse 17 is absolutely beautiful in light of Matthew 11, verse 28, as far as the, the invitation. Because what Paul is doing is he's recounting those who accepted that invitation. And here's what is said about their acceptance of it. But God be thanked, thanks, or thanked that though you were slaves to sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Your heart. You chose him. Even while many have rejected him, you chose him. And because God is God, he works in the lives of those who choose him. It's not a matter of, of selfishness to say that I choose the God who is freely and lovingly and graciously giving me the opportunity for salvation because I chose to reject him so many times. That's so the reason why the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, when you read verses 11, 12, and 13, particularly verses 12 and 13, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. Choose. Don't choose the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Choose the tree of life. Why? Well, remember when you became Christians and God gave you the gift of his spirit to dwell in you? He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is, a, it is God who is at work in you. Don't grieve his spirit. Work with the volition that you have been given, with the, the limited sovereignty that you have, that you can do, make choices, work with him. Because that's how he wants to guide you. That's why we have the beautiful passage of the whole of Romans chapter 8, or the beautiful passage that we read of in Ephesians chapter 1, or as we're stating here in Philippians 2. And that's the whole reason why we can go out and preach the gospel not knowing who's going to make that choice and freely hoping for the next person, whether it's a family member, whether it's a neighbor, people at work, strangers that we come into contact with, we can share the goodness of Jesus Christ with the opportunity and the possibility that that soul can accept him. And knowing the possibility that that soul who has accepted him could, in turn, in the future, reject him. Just like you can reject him, I believe. God forbid those things happen. And that's the reason why we have all these warnings to believers who have the Spirit of God. So this morning, you have an opportunity. 
God graciously through our traditions that we have with the invitation at the end of a sermon to want to come to him and to make that choice where you can say, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. So that I put my old man of sin to death through these waters behind us, the grave, and that I may raise to be walking in newness of life by your spirit, your will, by your calling that you predestined. And that you knew I would do these things and provide for me the means by which I can walk with you. That's our God. That's both sides working hand in hand, in my estimation. And so that said, how do you respond? I hope you respond with a good, honest, open heart, one that's humbled. But that's your choice, I believe. What will you choose? Choose life. Because that's what God has provided for you. And that's what he wants for you. And he doesn't want you to perish. So why don't you accept that invitation as together we stand and sing the song. Hi.